turn to the book of Ecclesiastes before we pray and get into the message. I want us to give us a little bit of the flavor of this book. We're going to read chapter 1. You follow along in your copy. Let's stand together out of respect to the Word of God and read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, and the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we ask this morning that you would give us hearts of wisdom, that we would learn from this uh, great uh, addition to your scriptures, uh, somewhat disputed because it is so, uh, in places, discouraging, depressing even. But Father, um, as we learn from the hard lessons of our lives, of the life of Solomon, the choices, the outcomes that he made, the pursuit that he went on over his life, that we would learn great truths. We would have wisdom enter our hearts, that we would come to see things um, differently than how we feel about them from time to time. Help us as we open this, uh, this book this morning, review it, um, and grasp the lessons from it, that we'd be instructed and built up. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes, the meaning of life under the sun, S-U-N, and the sun, S-O-N. I put that in there because I think both of those, not that, not that Jesus is highly evident in the book, but we will try to draw some inferences there. But um, 
This is a philosophical book, maybe the most philosophical book in the Bible. I loved studying philosophy. My instructor when I went to Bible college was uh, Pastor Sangbach David Kim. He was the founding pastor of Bethel Presbyterian up on St. John's Lane in Ellicott City. And uh, I forget how young he was. He was in his 40s. He's now in his 80s. And, and back in Korea, he's built a, a, a huge church and ministry and um, has a, uh, a worldwide impact in his ministry. And um, the class I took from him was uh, philosophy. And I'll never forget the first class we walked in. He's, he's a slight man, very quiet. He uses that as a way to just draw you in. And he opened the class and he says, why is the biblical worldview the best worldview? He's basically working from an assumption, but he wanted to take us as Christians, as young people, and challenge us to think about what do you really believe? Why do you believe it? Why do you think a theistic worldview is the best worldview? And then he went on to say, are you even convinced that it's the best worldview? Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary once said, I'm concerned that, I'll turn, that we will turn out a great number of young men into ministry, knowing much, much about the Bible, but being convinced of very little of it. That is sad because in the 40 years hence since I was in that class, there are a lot of Christians that have seemed to abandon their moorings. They have let life beat them down. And they have let go of things. They have maybe had the wandering experience of Solomon. As I said, this could be argued as the most philosophical book in the Bible. But what is philosophy? What is a worldview? Let me just not make assumptions here. Do you know what a worldview is? Do you have one? Have you thought it through? Basically, a worldview, said another way, is have you answered life's big questions? And those big questions are, who am I? The question of identity. How did I get here? The question of origin. Why am I here? The question of purpose. Do I and does life even matter? The question of meaning. What is right and wrong? The question of morality. How do I know what I know even? How have I come to understand or believe even what I believe? That is a question that looks at the basis of our investigation. It's the technical term of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Do we only know it through the scientific method? That will lead you into a brick wall. But that is a dominant perspective in our world today. We have already seen in the previous couple years that science cannot be trusted. What is real? The question of the nature of being, or the technical term is metaphysics, that which comes after the physical realm. The concept implied that there is a material, immaterial realm. There is the concept of thought. Can you measure? Can you see somebody thinking? Can you understand all that goes on in this amazing computer God created called our brain, our heart, our will? Can we measure that? 
what is worthwhile, what is beautiful. That leads us to the, the outcome of how we decide to invest ourselves, where we put our energies, our time, our commitment. That's the technical area of axiology. See, the theme of Ecclesiastes, oops, I'm going the wrong direction, sorry, is often said to be life under the sun. And we saw that in chapter 1. And for the predominance of the book, it is life under the sun, but not with all the sun's benefits. Many places in the book, we're seeing a bank of clouds that obscure the sun. And every once in a while, through that depression, that sense of futility, that sense of vanity, little glimmers of rays of light break through the clouds and dawn on the younger Solomon's minded heart. These, uh, these experiences are wonderfully preserved for us. Solomon had a vantage point, likely the wisest of men the world has ever known. And he went about trying to answer life's philosophical questions for most of this book as merely a man with only the resources of a man. But we know early in his ministry, as we saw in our historical book study, that God had granted him a very wise request, which was to grant him wisdom to rule God's people. And then we also saw in that experience of his life how he let his heart be turned aside by disobedience. His resources of wisdom and wealth and experience and the peaceful rule that God gave him gave him advantages beyond possibly anyone else in the history of the world. But still, in many of his point-by-point -point conclusions in his philosophical journey, he ended up with the conclusion that life is vanity. But there are some still insights to learn from that. Because we sometimes feel that way, don't we? I have felt that way. I have felt, what did it matter? Did it matter? Why didn't I make a different choice? What would have been the outcome? We all wrestle with that. Solomon is not too much disputed to be the author. He is called the Koheleth the preacher, one who convokes or addresses an assembly. And, and really, as you go through this, this, these may be internal musings, but they're not meant to be only for his experience. This is probably written later in his life. And we see from what we saw in chapter 1 as well as chapter 2 that he had great advantages that would probably only have been reserved for someone like himself. We really don't have other kings that we can look to, even in the good kings of Judah that probably had all these kinds of experiences, benefits, and assets at their disposal. It was probably written late in his life as a reflection of the choices and the outcomes of a lifelong pursuit to answer life's big questions. And he went all in, if you read the book closely. The theme... <clears throat> The book is a report of a diligent quest for purpose, meaning, and satisfaction in human life. The preacher poignantly sees the emptiness and futility of power, popularity, prestige, and pleasure apart from God. The word vanity occurs 37 times. 
37 times. And the phrase, under the sun, occurs another 29 times. There is a repeated, repeated sense in which at every avenue, at every choice that Solomon pursued trying to answer these questions, the outcome seemed to be always a dead end, a futile outcome. In a visual sense of things, um, when I preached on this years ago, I blew a bunch of soap bubbles. And that's a picture of it, isn't it? It seems like there's something there, and you see a little kid grab it, and it's gone. Sometimes, without even grabbing it, it's gone. Right? That's vanity. You would think it might be a little depressing, but there are these rays of hope. Key verses kind of portend some of these rays. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 24. There is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. In Ecclesiastes 12, we'll come back to this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or it is evil. So just give us a little bit of a sense of the outline. It's taken from uh, Talk Through the Bible by um, <clears throat> Boa and Wilkinson. There is a philosophical proposition. We kind of saw that right at the beginning of chapter 1. His conclusion in his quest is, life is vain. It's vain. It's vanity. It's vanity of vanities. It's vanity to the, to the nth degree. And then he goes about telling you how he came to that proposition through all kinds of experiential things, scientific things, relational things, and basically taking in that data all along the way and trying to make sense of it and to organize it and to come to some conclusion. In this pursuit, we see there's experience, there's empirical observation, um, there's rationalism, that is, that, that idea that I just meditate and put things together in my mind and I might put them in some kind of written form to keep them organized. But sometimes there's actually divine wisdom. Sometimes that gift that God had given him, that blessing, that answer to that prayer, in the midst of a life, if we recall, Solomon, he had disobeyed God completely where Deuteronomy said, do not multiply to yourself horses or money or wives and women and he violated every single one of them and then he experienced the consequences of that we saw that in that that turning point of his rule things went drastically downhill in a broken and dysfunctional way and what he handed off at the end of his life was a divided kingdom To, much, to whom much is given, much is also required is our principle here, right? But the beautiful thing is that even in his later years, God is not forgotten. He's just been obscured. God still shows up and parts the clouds a bit in this pursuit. And Solomon is able to grasp transcendent truth once again. 
He's able for our benefit, for those that he was trying to reach in, even in his day, to impart some wisdom to hope that people would learn from his mistakes. There is, in the end, a clarity and a conclusion in the conclusion, and we'll look at that more closely. Now, <clears throat> the outline we saw in, um, in chapter 1, the thesis is that all is vanity, verses 1 to 11. There are cycles of nature and history that just keep bringing us back to where we started. Life is futile and perplexing. That is a conclusion based on his in-process study, if you will. That's not the final conclusion, but that's, that's where it is on first brush. You know, that's the hypothesis, so to speak. And then he went about to prove... Maybe that there's a chance that it isn't. This is how I feel. This is how it seems. This is how it looks. But I'm going to investigate it more thoroughly and more deeply. In chapter 1 through chapter, chapter 112 through chapter 6, we see that he identifies himself as the preacher and explains the resources he has available in this pursuit and they are, go back to the description of all the wealth, all the things, the gold. The fact that other rulers from around that area of the world came to him with gifts on top of all that he'd already accumulated. They came to seek him out like the Queen of Sheba to just have him expound wisdom and to consult as an advisor. And I might add, this, was, uh, this, this period of this writing, if, if you look back at the last slide, this was in the mid-950s B.C. We often, thought, we often think about how Western thought is so influenced by Greek philosophy, and, you know, we can work with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides. Do you not think that it's possible that the wisdom of Solomon somehow came down to these people through the Medo-Persians and the captivity and the wise people of the Jews that were in exile and that were later taken over by the Greeks 500 years from now or so 400 I mean this arrangement in the book of Ecclesiastes is a classical proposition proof conclusion format that we look at as classical philosophical reasoning and logic written almost at a thousand bc amazing structure when you look at the book it is very amazingly put together if you look at it closely in this solomon is turning over every rock in his pursuit. And he starts with what seemed to be the good starting place, wisdom, right? But even he says that wisdom, verse 17, I set my, my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize that this also is striving against the wind. I mean, that's a little shocking. We would think that would be a good thing. Hold your conclusion, we will get there. But 
That's where he starts. Then he goes in a complete opposite direction. There is laughter and hedonism and wine. And hedonism, just by simple definition, is an abandonment to pleasure and sensuality of every kind. He tried that. Chapter 2, he looks at his works and the amazing things that he built and the expansion of his kingdom. He looks at the women that became part of his harem. He looks at wealth. Again, it's futile. In chapter 3, we get to kind of a, a, a transition. Well, let me not skip here. There is this ray of light, this ray of sunshine. In chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better than for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That sounds like a moment of clarity, doesn't it? It's not the whole answer, but it might be part of the answer. That God doesn't always oppress us. That God does allow these little periods from time to time, just as an aside, my work experience has been very stressful recently. In the last little while, I just said, you know, I'm taking a personal day. I'm walking away from this mess just for 24 hours. Oh, what a, what a gift that was. Went to, took the boys, went to see the air show at the Naval Academy. I, I love that. I mean, that was great. That was, that, was, that was refreshing just to see that precision and skill and to be in a place that means a lot to me. We need that. There are these little rays of sunshine that pass through. And, um, and in, chapter, in chapter 3, we see that God has appointed the times and the seasons and the conditions of life for mankind so that we should fear him, realizing we're not in control ultimately, are we? I mean, like you talked about in chapter 1, nature just moves on with or without us. There are things way beyond our ability to control. And, um, and you see, some of you that are, that are closer to my age, you know that chapter 3 is, is pop, uh, in pop culture was, was, uh, was a big, this, these verses were a big deal in, in the mid-60s. There was a song that went to be number one called Turn, Turn, Turn. It came right out of this passage. And I think the interesting thing I'm going to draw from that is our culture used to be a Judeo-Christian culture. Even people who didn't follow after God, that worldview permeated the culture. A song written by a Jewish man. And it went to be number one. When do you think that might happen again, that something out of the Bible is going to be number one on the popular there is this sense that we have moved so far away. Is it, a, is it a mystery why we have such high degrees of mental illness, suicide, drug abuse? People are living under the sun. They're living without hope. They're living in despair. They need the wisdom of this book. Chapter 3, we see some other things going on there. We see that 
These are things that we experience. There are inequities in life. There is oppression. There is work that is unrewarded. And relationships are fickle, changeable. Things that used to be depended upon, non-negotiables. They just vanish. They change. The emptiness of self-styled performance-based religion may seem that he's saying, hey, you know, when he talks in chapter 5 about these responses to God, many times I think the issue is he's looking at the mechanism of worship but not the heart of it. Chapter 6, we have the emptiness of wealth, the emptiness in the experience of life, especially those hardships, those very sad and grievous things that happen that just bring us down and, you know, it makes it tough to breathe. It makes it tough to move. And we can become very despairing. But again, there's a ray of sunlight that breaks through chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given the riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. You know, that's... That's, that's a wonderful place to be in the midst of a lot of things that are broken and dysfunctional in this world. To like draw out the good things that are there. Give us the eyes to see them. Well, in chapter 7 through 12, the last section of the book, Solomon goes into a series of sermons, and he's giving wisdom a front and center place now. He's saying, look, yeah, if I step back from it and I actually look at wisdom from a different perspective than maybe just an under-the-sun perspective. When I take these little rays of sunshine that break through the clouds and I kind of put them together, something more coheres. And there's things I've learned in my 80-plus years that other people need to benefit from. And in this section, these sermons in chapter 7 through 12, these are lessons to pass on to the young. And he starts again with this section of the book, and he basically says, hey, if I step back, there is an advantage. All things aren't equal in the end. There are some things that are improvements or betterments over others. Wisdom does show us that not all things are equal. Some things are preferred, such as wisdom, should be preferred over foolishness. This is an old man speaking some, some insight. Wisdom protects us. It provides for us. It gives us perspective. But often, we miss out on these blessings. We don't learn lessons from others and their experience we don't even learn from our own previous mistakes sometimes and yet they're there those lessons are there i I think this is an amazing thing if you look in chapter 7 verse 25 
And again, it's kind of a, a, a commentary point in the middle of the book. He says, I, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Is that a man that's maybe feeling some regret about the 300 wives and 700 concubines that drew his heart away and brought massive waves of consequence down on the people that he cared about and ruled over. Behold, I've discovered this as a preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found the woman <coughs> among all these. A little bit chauvinistic. People don't like that part, but maybe he's, maybe he's talking about um, the experiences that he had. Behold, I found this only, that God men made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Hey, in the end, we're accountable. I made those choices. Wow. Great, great insight. Wisdom calls us, <clears throat> in chapter 8, wisdom calls us to respect authority, but know that they are limited and off, often wicked. Yes, there is a sense of God-ordained order in society, and he institutes governments to that end. But don't get enamored with governments. They're wicked, sinful people, too. Wisdom is for yourself, and it's often rejected by others, chapter 9. Still, choose wisdom. You can't be wise for someone else. Do you understand that there? I mean, you can pass on wise advice, but you can't make somebody else wise. Wisdom is an internally gravitated to, grasped onto experience that we have to come to on our own journey. And then in chapters 10 and 11, he just starts laying it out. These short, pithy, sayings, these little maxims, he starts saying, hey, this is better than that. This is a better way to do that. When you're in this situation, do this. He's just starting to cut to the chase as almost a crescendo to the book. And um, th these are really good. I mean, we don't have time to go into them, but because but, uh, I want to spend some time here in chapter 12. But there are these rays of sunshine. Again, in chapter 8, verse 12, says, second verse, although, or verse 12, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. Is it always fair? As they say sometimes, that the good die young. Still, it's better to be good. Still, it's better to be wise. Why do evil people live to be 80, 90 years old sometimes? Doesn't make sense in our sense of internal justice, does it? 
Verse 15 in the same chapter. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toil throughout his day of, days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, another ray of light. Go then, verse 7, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. I guess next week we'll be looking at Song of Solomon. We'll see the early days of maybe Solomon's first wife, Shulamith. We'll see the height of what married love can be before it gets distorted and stripped away. And it's almost like he's looking back wistfully at that time of life. And that's where we get to these last lessons, chapter 11, verse 9. He's speaking to young people, he has been, but I think he really becomes very pointed at this point. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are definitely fleeting. So then he exhorts with this word, remember, implied in verse 6, stated in verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are dark and the clouds return after the rain. And basically what he goes on is one of the most poetically rich descriptions of what it's like to be an old person <laughs> you know do I have time yeah I do in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few and those who look through the window grow dim the doors on the street are shut at the sound of grinding mills low. I can't hear what you just said. And one will rise at the sound of a bird. All you postmenopausal ladies, you know all about this, right? And all the daughters of song will sing softly. I cannot hold a double whole note like I used to. You just, singing is not for the aged, I promise you. I mean, we should still sing. We, we did talk about psalms, right? But you're not going to be able to do it the way you want, sadly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place. I still go on ladders, but man, am I a lot more cautious. And of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms. Almond tree turns very white. And the grasshopper drags himself along. 
and we won't go into what the caperberry is all about, but medical science will tell you all about it. Just ask the people that are making millions on Cialis and Viagra and all that. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken. You know what color your spinal cord is? And the golden bowl is crushed, and the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel of the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. He kind of almost ends where he started, didn't he? We'll wait. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads. They stick us in the ribs. They cause us to pay attention, to wake up, to look around. The masters of these collections are well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. Excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. The conclusion was all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or it's evil. We can talk about there's 613 commandments in the law, but they really all boil down to just 10, don't they? And in the New Testament, they boil down to two. God's constantly trying to help us simplify. We don't need thousands of books to get to the answer of the heart of God. Fear me, revere me, love me, worship me, obey me. Everything else will be settled out in its time. Some things we might need to learn from this book. First of all, just to show that there is one shepherd. We just mentioned it. There is one shepherd. When you think about this, He's the one who placed eternity in our heart, and I won't go into all these things on the side. You'll have to get your magnifying glass. I'm out, so sorry about that for those that you're needing the glasses. Um, but he's the one who placed eternity in our heart that we should search out the big questions of life because they lead us ultimately back to him if we are truly pursuing the truth. He's the one who leads us to a right view from God's vantage point. He's the one who gives the gifts of joy and meaning and satisfaction as we fear God and keep his commandments. Here's a definition of wisdom. I thought about this last week. We are in Proverbs. Wisdom is the skill of looking at life from God's vantage point and acting in accordance with it. Skill is the wisdom of looking at life from God's vantage point and acting in accordance with it. Some applications, and we close. Like our study in Job, so with Ecclesiastes, it is good to wrestle with what we believe and why we believe it. It's good to ask hard questions, even if we don't get the answer right away. It is part of how God made us, and he can handle it when we wrestle with him. Just ask Jacob, right? Jacob was blessed because he wrestled. Second, wrestle with a full complement of resources. Yes, our experience, our intellectual capabilities, our relationships can help us, but we need revelation. Revelation is your word 
from God to clarify our perspective. Number three, be very cautious of making how we feel about something our ultimate measure of what is real. Those feelings are real to us in an introspective sense, but they are not the ultimate reality. We are called to set our minds on things above, not on things on this earth, including us on this earth. Now I'm going to meddle. Cautions for us who live in an information age. There is a lot of information that is trash and corruption that amuses, confuses, distracts, and diminishes us from thinking about things deeply. Don't make tweets, reels, memes, blogs, and social media your primary diet for heart and soul. Wake up, people. <laughs> They're trying to suck us away from asking and answering the big questions. As a book years ago, it was prophetic. It came out in the 90s. Look it up sometime. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and that was just at the beginning of the internet. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Here's one at no extra charge. I thought about this while I was working on my notes, uh, thinking through things this morning in the shower. Be careful of artificial intelligence and virtual reality. It is only artificial and virtual. It will never have a soul or spirit even if it tries to mimic one, there's a reason that Zuckerberg calls it meta or the metaverse. It's something after true reality. It's make-believe. It is vanity. Be very careful. And finally, there is some good stuff on the internet. I'm not going to be an old codger. But don't settle till you find it because you will have to search for it. And start with your Bible and start with asking for those answers from God directly. James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. And he doesn't reproach us for asking. He doesn't make fun of us. God will do it. Father, we're so grateful for this book of the Bible. And maybe the reason it's a bit controversial, maybe a reason that it took until 90 AD before it was very much solidly confirmed to be your scripture with your stamp of approval upon it is because it just is the, the outcome of of human experience as we feel it, as we go through it, as we try to understand it. And we run into the wrong ways and the wrong, wrong paths in our pursuits. But thank you, Lord, that we have the example of Solomon, the wisest man as you've described him, who already went down these paths. And we have his insight and we have his wisdom that we not have to repeat those same lessons. We pray you protect us, you provide, you bless us with your heavenly perspective. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, we